So we've been working through this uh, series, last one today, uh, 24 hours in the life of Jesus, the last 24. It's amazing, isn't it? It's remarkable that we come to this particular point when we think what has actually gone on. Have you ever had one of those experiences where a very, very short amount of time, maybe 24 hours, maybe even less, changes the whole of life, changes everything, an experience, a situation, something that occurs which changes the whole of the future. In a sense, that's what we're looking at here. The 24 hours that changes, not just our individual experiences, although it can do that. Ultimately, what it does is it changes the course of this world. Not that it wasn't expected. It's not as though this 24 hours suddenly uh, changes all of the plans of God. Rather, this is the fulfillment that becomes the center of the history of this world that means that everything has changed as a result of this. 24 hours that changed everything. Changed into the future. Changed people. Changed situations. Changed our response to things. Everything is changed. 24 hours earlier than this particular event that we're reading about, the disciples had asked Jesus, where shall we prepare to eat the supper together? That's what had gone on 24 hours earlier. They'd been met with him. They said, where shall we prepare to eat the supper? And he'd sent them into the town, identifying where they could go and prepare for them to eat. That seems like light years away in terms of the events that have gone on, the way things have just so dramatically, incredibly unfolded. And that's why this 24 hours is so dramatic, is so important, and is the reason why 2,000 years later, across the world, we are still talking about Jesus. Across the world, people are still saying, this 24 hours is life-changing for me. It started, I'm not sure, I don't watch it, it drives me crackers, uh, drives me mad, but The Apprentice has started. I think it was this week. Uh, some of you might just really love it. I just, it drives me nuts. However, uh, Zishan Shah, one of the uh, contenders... Uh, in the little kind of uh, video um, bio, or the, the kind of rah-rah bio, the one that they all kind of get G'd up on, he said, I want people to know my name in 200 years. <laughs> I thought, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating that that's a drive for so many people. I want to be known. I want to be famous <laughs> in 200 years' time. In other words, I want my my few years in this world to be world-shaping. <laughs> the reality is, 2,000 years later, 24 hours plus 
30 years of 33 years of life and three years of ministry, but significantly 24 hours ensures that Jesus remains central to this world. He continues to be a point of massive contention, interest, questioning, and for many people, ultimately, the point of faith and hope. We can't get away from it. These 24 hours, in fact, we're now, we're now reaching that final point. The final, the final hour. The final, uh, the, we, we said a few weeks ago, there's the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. That's the way the Hebrew mind worked. It wasn't necessarily specific. It was just big general ideas of time. We're reaching from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. It has gone dark across the whole of the land. That's what we looked at last time. We're now reaching the ninth hour. It, it really need to make this clear. It's not, a, it's not an absolute time. It's from sunrise to sunset was kind of mapped out as the 12 hours of the day in the Hebrew uh, way of thinking. Well, that obviously changes, doesn't it? Because sunrise to sunset is a varying time through the year. But we come to this ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, there or thereabouts. We're going to see three things as we look at it. Well, firstly, we're going to see that this is not a spectacle, it's a purpose. Not a spectacle, it's a purpose. It's not a power show, it's a message. And it's not an illusion, it's a hope. Three things that we're going to look at. First thing, it is not a spectacle, it's a purpose. Let's have a look at the way our, our reading opens up. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. I don't know whether the actions of the, this particular group, we can see that it's, it's a group, isn't it? Uh, those standing there heard him cry out, he's calling Elijah, so immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. So imagine, I want you to, for a moment, just imagine what that scene must have been like. There's a group of people around the foot of the cross watching Jesus as, he's, as he is dying. They hear him shout, and they think, they look for uh, a dramatic event, and one of them goes and gets a sponge, dips it in this wine vinegar, holds it on a stick probably, and, and just lifts it up so that the sponge is presented to the mouth of Jesus so that he's able to drink some of that that is soaked up into the sponge. That's what happens. I don't know whether, we were looking last week, that there was a remarkable, there was a supernatural event, because for three hours it goes dark. I don't know whether that that added to the reason why these guys responded in the way that they did. They can see that dramatic things are going on, because it's dark in the middle of the day. 
Then they hear Jesus shouting out. What does that say? It says that they are immediately connecting the dramatic events that are going on with the death of this man. You see that? They know, what, they know that there's a connection. They are saying, let's see in the middle of these dramatic events, i.e. the darkness, let's see if an even more dramatic event is going to occur, which is the appearance of Elijah. What, what does that mean? What, why do they say that? We need a little bit of background from the Old Testament. Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. What's interesting about Elijah, as we read the account of Elijah, he is one of two in the Old Testament who actually doesn't die. It's remarkable. He's taken into heaven uh, miraculously without dying. Uh, And so there is that potential, there is an idea that generates that in the middle of the greatest of uh, challenges and difficulties, it is Elijah who can come and help you because Elijah is the one who, after all, hasn't died. But, But you see, there is a deeper thing going on that they're saying, can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like? We're here. We've seen it get dark. Imagine if as he shouts out, we can see Elijah turn up. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? And that, I think, is, is just knit into the conversation. Go and get a sponge, fill it with wine vinegar. I've mentioned before, Jesus is offered two drinks, one at the beginning of his crucifixion, one at this point. He doesn't drink the first one, he does drink this one. Uh, we, we know that he drinks it because uh, of their response. They put it on his staff and offered it up to Jesus. And then in verse 49 it says, the rest said, now leave him alone. In other words, they've seen him take some. Now let's see what happens as a result of him drinking some of that out of the sponge. So he drinks this one. What's remarkable is that this is the drink to uh, give energy. Uh, that's what wine vinegar did, used by... Um, archaeological records show that it was used by gladiators, for example, as a stimulant, as a kind of a boost as they went into the arena. So in other words, they are seeing the potential of keeping Jesus going, giving him that extra burst, because it might be the doorway for a dramatic event. You know, that is what lots and lots of people think about in terms of religion, a dramatic event. I was chatting to a few people a few weeks ago. It's remarkable the way different groups of people observe the world that we live in. Some people reflect on where we are and they talk about us uh, no longer living, you talk about the kind of postmodernism, you know, that kind, that's on the lips of lots of people at the moment. Uh, another group of people are talking about this interesting idea. We're now living in the post-secular age. In other words, they are acknowledging that there is an increase, there is an, an, an opening out, there is a bursting again of spirituality. Now that is really upsetting for lots of people 
Because the logic of the secular world, the materialistic, logical, objective, scientific world, has seemingly dispensed with the idea of spirituality. And yet you know and I know that spirituality is bursting out all over the place again, isn't it? People are more interested in spirituality now than I think certainly in all of my life. It's growing. But the spirituality that lots of people are looking for is the spirituality that comes with some sort of excitement, some sort of drama, some sort of feeling, some sort of spectacle, some sort of self-serving tool where I get the kicks out of a religious experience. And nothing changes in the world in one sense. Here is a group of guys who are in exactly that place. They want the kicks out of the spiritual experience. They want to see the dramatic. And Jesus determinedly says, this is not a spectacle, it has a purpose. Because at the very moment where they give him the stimulant to keep him going, where they're waiting in anticipation, in the middle of all of the drama of the darkness, he dies. And it gets light again. And Elijah doesn't turn up. And the guys at the bottom of the cross wander away. Because it hasn't delivered the spiritual kick that they'd hoped for. Because it was never, never about a spectacle. It was about the control of Jesus over the whole of the situation that says, Now is my time to die. Now is my time to die. Do you see the interesting dynamic that has gone on? All the way through, you've been trying to kill me, and I've been staying alive. Now comes the moment where you want me to stay alive, and I'm the one who decides it's time to die. Do you see that? That's precisely what goes on at this moment in time. Jesus is stamping his authority on the situation to say, I am the one who holds my life in my hands. I give it up. Because this is not about whether it's a dramatic experience, although that reinforces the truth of what is going on. It has a purpose. In other words, at the center of the cross is the idea, Jesus is here to die. He's here to die. Not to create a show. Although he reinforces the nature of his death by the events that go on. It's not a spectacle. It has a purpose. Jesus is controlling it. The next thing we see, it's not a power show. It has a message. At that moment, at that moment, it's like 
Well, Mark does it. Matthew does it. It's almost... They allow the scene to change. The scene up to now has been on the hillside above, outside of Jerusalem, on the hill that is connected to the temple, but outside of the city. If you go to Jerusalem, you can see the way the, the temple down in the city has, or the, the, the place where the temple was, has a continuous kind of ridge that reaches up to where the crucifixion was. So we understand. And what Matthew and Mark are doing are, are changing the scene. They are concentrating the idea of Jesus on the cross at the top, and then in a moment they switch it. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's going on there? They are shifting the scene, deliberately, (laughs) deliberately. Because that death is connected to this event down in the temple. But more happens. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. It's power, isn't it? It's supernatural power. In other words, there is something going on at this moment in time which is beyond human capability to deliver. God is is effectively saying, God is saying, the wholeness of God, the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all of their effective power, are breaking into this world and displaying with tremendous authoritative power, this is the Son of God dying in this world. And the curtain is ripped from top to bottom. (laughs) The curtain... I don't, do you remember as a kid when you used to see sort of derelict buildings around cities and there'd be the smashed windows where the kids have thrown the stones through and there'd be net curtains kind of wafting in and out of the windows. You know those kind of grubby grey? Um, that's what it was like uh, when I were a lad anyway. Um, it was like that. You could see it. Maybe you don't see it quite so often. Uh, maybe because net curtains are out of fashion. I don't know. But you'd see these curtains. It's just don't get that idea into your head. This curtain was what you would measure the thickness. It was so thick. It was layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of material so that you could could literally grip it. It was so thick. It's not the kind of curtain that catches a breeze and allows as as, as the wind develops to allow it to rip. This curtain has incredibly and supernaturally being ripped from the top to the bottom, meters tall, from the top to the bottom, ripped open. The ground has exploded, an earthquake has occurred, and the tombs have, have broken open. It's as though God is making... A statement, a statement of authority and power. Uh, it happens in a sense, it, it, it's always happened. We always see this kind of thing going on, but is it just 
a statement of power. If you go and you have a look around some of the, uh, the Egyptian uh, history, if you go and dig into some of that, what's fascinating is the way, uh, well, for example, Hatshepsut, a woman, Pharaoh. Pretty much all of the history, the, the carvings, the recognition of her was completely removed after she died. It was literally defaced from the history. It's as though she was eradicated. How about this? Do you remember when that great statue of Saddam Hussein was pulled down and shattered and smashed? So from thousands and thousands of years ago to today... We've had these kind of statements of one power coming in over the top of the other power and making a declaration to say, we are now in charge. And that, in one sense, that is exactly what God is doing. He's saying effectively, I am ripping apart What has gone before? I am defacing. I am eradicating. I am desecrating. I am desecrating the most holy place. It's remarkable that God is doing that. Because right the way through the Old Testament, if you follow the storyline, God is so concerned about the tabernacle and the holy place. God is so concerned about the temple, the first temple, and the holy place. God is so concerned about the second temple and the holy place. He makes it clear again and again, this is special, and then he destroys it. He desecrates it. In all the, all the fullness of that meaning. He stamps on the religious significance and holiness of that place. Do you get that? God stamps on the holiness of the place where he had previously been seen to dwell. That's amazing, isn't it? Here's the question. Is it just about a statement of power or is it more? It's more. It's more than that because at the same time, he is also making a declaration. He could have done it in all sorts of ways. I mean, if you think about it, God has brought an earthquake, he's smashed open tombs, and he has ripped a curtain. If he wanted to say simply, that's no longer the way it is, He could have caused the holy of holies to fall in on itself. It could have been completely obliterated. It could have been a pile of rubble with the curtain sort of disappearing underneath this pile of rubble as it implodes. But he doesn't. He rips it open. He keeps it established. He keeps the building in place but opens it. With violence, he opens it. Because he is saying, He is making a statement. It is more than a show of power. It is a message to say, symbolically, the connection between that up there and this down here is quite simply this. 
That makes access to God open. That, that's the statement. That event, as we read in this account here, we see as Jesus died, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. God doesn't destroy the old way. He makes a statement through it. What was the Holy of Holies all about? What was this curtain all about? It was a thick, heavy curtain that kept you and me out. It kept you and me out of the presence of God. In fact, only one priest, only one priest could go behind that curtain, and that only once a year. The tradition has it that they would tie, they had bells on their garments and a rope around their waist so that if they died in the presence of God, they could be dragged out from under the curtain without anybody else going into that terrifying place, the presence of God. And God says, in this very, I love the fact, don't you, that the Bible makes big declarations that are really, they're, they're kind of, they're really easy. They're not complex words, are they? They're just big signs. I'm just going to allow that statement up on that cross to open it up. So suddenly, suddenly, ordinary people are walking into the temple and they'd have fixed it, but we can come back to that at another point. They'd have gone into the temple and suddenly they'd have just looked in and it would have just been a room. It would have just been a room. Because the presence of God is no longer achieved through that room. It's achieved through that event on the cross. Jesus dies, opens a new curtain. Why? Why? Because that priest goes through a new curtain. That's the idea behind it. It's not as though the idea of a priest going behind a curtain has been changed. No, it's God says there's a new curtain there's a new priest. It's a new priest. It's that one who dies on a cross. It makes that obsolete. That was great. That was great because it pointed the way. It prepared you for it. But that's even better because this priest is a permanent priest. This is a permanent priest who's permanently gone behind the curtain. He's permanently there for your sake. And that's the idea that we see. It is more than a statement of power, it is a message. Finally, it is not an illusion, it is a hope. Look at what happens. As the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who were died were who died would let's start again. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. That's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. The tombs break open (laughs) as Jesus dies. But when Jesus is raised, they're raised. Isn't that fascinating? I caught flicking through um, TV last night, something called The Illusionists. It was on a program, I can't remember which one it was, and it was just remarkable, just, I I love magic, I love those kind of magic shows, you know, 
This was just incredible where this guy gets cut in half with a chainsaw and then he's moved onto a bench and, and he kind of lifts himself up and does a bit of a dance without any legs and, and he kind of, kind of... It's just amazing. Just incredible. However, is this just an illusion? Is this just some sort of clever trick? You know, the thing is, I can watch something like that last night and I can walk away from it, and it doesn't make a blind bit of difference to me. I can just walk away from it. But I can't walk away from this, because this makes an absolute statement of hope. It says, as Jesus died, as he dies, the power and the constraint of death gets broken open. That's what happens with the tombs. As Jesus dies, the power, the the constraining power of the tombs gets shattered. As he is raised from the dead, they get raised from the dead. Loads of them. Look at the way it's described. Many people are raised from the dead and they're seen by many people. It's great the way that's written. In other words, it's saying, this is, this is so dramatic, it is so well known, it is so well established, because lots of people were raised and lots of people saw it. Historically, it's robust. It's not an illusion. But it's making an even more powerful statement, which is this. Somehow connected to Jesus dying is the idea that other people's death loses its power. Somehow connected to Jesus rising is the idea that other people's resurrection is possible. That's the connection. It's not all about Jesus dying and rising again. It's about the fact that Jesus dying breaks the power of death over other people and Jesus rising gives hope for others that there is resurrection. That's at the core of it. It's a hope. It means that I can't walk away from this. I can't just say, well, that's amazing. That's just incredible. It's about life and death. It's about hope. It's about the possibility that the rising of Jesus might be connected to the possibility that I might be able to rise from the dead as well. I might be able to defeat death. I might be able to live again because he lives. That is at the core of the Christian message. Hope. So why is it connected to Jesus' death? Because of this. Two things. Firstly, because it doesn't look like hope. Firstly. Jesus dying on a cross doesn't look like hope. Metallica have a song called um, The God That Failed. Two of the lines in the song go like this. The healing hand held back by the deepened nail. Wow. The healing hand held back by the deepened nail. This hand that had healed all sorts of people is now constrained by the idea of a nail being struck through it. Follow the God that failed. And do you know what? 
They are absolutely right. God did fail unless Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, if that hand that healed was nailed to a cross and that was the end of it, it is the God that failed. But the fact that we see here is that Jesus died, the tombs broke open, and three days later, he rose from the dead, and the people who were in those tombs come to life. And he didn't fail. In fact, quite the reverse. As he decides it's now time to die, he's making that statement, it's now time for hope to break into this world. But why is it connected to his death? Paul puts it like this later on in Romans. He says this, Therefore, just as sin entered through one man and death through sin. In other words, there is a clear connection between sin and death as far as God is concerned, as far as the message of the Bible is concerned. Death isn't just an unfortunate, sad circumstance of being human. Death is the result of sin in this world. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. In other words, the reason that you and I are going to die is in one sense connected to the fact that the first human beings rebelled against God, sinned, and therefore died, but it's also because you and I have sinned, and therefore will die. There is a connection. That's why it's connected to Jesus' death, because death is about sin, and Jesus died. But then he came back to life, because his death is because of sin. It's because of sin. And we know, and we've said it so many times, in fact, if you've been around here for any length of time at all, hopefully you've heard this. This simple connection. His death is because of my sin. And your sin, if we trust and believe in him. And his life becomes my hope of life. And your hope of life. Let me just say this, final thing as we close. If you, you, might have, you might have believed, you might have believed in Jesus, you might have come to terms with this good news of Jesus. He is who he is, he died, and, and that's great news and wonderful, and I trust in him and I believe in him. But if you have not connected the idea of your sin and your guilt as being the reason why you cannot Go into heaven for all of eternity. If you have not connected that it is the problem of sin, personally, then you have not fully understood what the Christian faith is all about. It is because of your sin and my sin that bars us from the presence of God. And the cross is about God dealing with it. That is great news. But it's only great news if we come to terms with it. If we say, I've I've had lots of conversations and they go a bit like this. Well, I I love Jesus, but I've never really 
effectively the, co the conversation unfolds. I don't really think I'm that bad. You know, I, I love the fact that he died, but I'm not that bad. The fact that he died tells me I am really bad. I am really, really, really bad. And that's the great news. Because his death is on account of my sin and your sin if you trust in him. And if you've not come to terms with that, you have not come to terms with the Christian message. But the 24 hours in the life of Jesus is all about that. It's about the great news that for the next 2,000 years, people have been coming to terms with my guilt dealt with. Great news. Great news.